I'm really looking forward to, uh, to this season, and we're going to jump in this morning. I'm going to read from a passage that you may not typically would consider to be a, have very, very little to do with Christmas, but as I'll explain in a few moments, I think probably any passage we would turn to this morning could relate to the message of Christmas. So <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can follow along. Otherwise, you can just listen as I, I read a, a very interesting story taken from the last chapter in, in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 24, verse 13. It says, Now that same day there were two of them going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. I was listening to a podcast recently by Tim Keller, who gave, I think, a really helpful and important point about studying the Bible and thinking about the Bible. He said, often we, if you imagine like, like the Bible's like a tree, often what we do is we, we slice it to the middle. So if you cut down a tree and then just imagine you cut off little slices 
And you take this slice out, and this slice talks about the, forgive, the importance of forgiveness in your life. Or you take out this slice, and it talks about the importance of prayer. And you take out this slice, and it talks about how to manage your money. And it takes, you take out this slice, slice here, and it talks about, you know, how you should <clears throat> uh, relate to the world around you, or how you ought to live your life, the things you should do, and things that you shouldn't do. And, and so we end up with kind of a, a picture like the Bible is really about how to live your life. How to live a moral life. Almost like a code with a bunch of things that you should follow. But Keller says, what if we took the Bible and we took that tree, instead of slicing it this way, what if we cut it this way? From top to bottom. And we took out pieces and we realized that everything from Genesis to Revelation, if we took a little slice of it, it all fits together. And so, what this slice up here is saying is really connected with this down here and this down here. And so, this morning, we are going to be looking at a story. We're going to be looking at the Bible as a story. And it has all the components of any story. Just a few weeks ago now, I think it's the, is it the seventh or eighth in the Rocky series? How many of you are Rocky fans? Okay? All right, some of you, all right. Yeah, like, well, Creed 2 is out now, and so you're going to go watch it. It's the same as all the others. Same, same storyline, but people will go watch it. Why? Because it, it's a great story. It has relationship. It has tension that comes in. It has this inevitable conflict that's coming, and you're hoping that the good will win and, and that the bad will lose. And in the end, in the end, it, it, it happens and is kind of a happily ever after. Every, every good story has that. And so this story, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, I would suggest to you that we're, what we're going to be talking about, what you see on the screen, is what this book is about. This is about a God who wants to be with us. It's about a God that wants to be with you. And, and I don't know what, at what level you experience that truth in your life, but my prayer is that by the end of this month, that all of us would be experiencing that to a much deeper level. That we, we, we would have at least moved in some way to a deeper experience of our God with us. As I mentioned, the theme is everywhere. It starts in chapter 1 of the Bible. Genesis 1, we see the first hint. God creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates the creatures and the animals. And then he does something very unique and very distinct. He created mankind. He created you and me. And it says that he created us in his image. Nothing else was created in God's image. But you were created in God's image. I was created in God's image. Why did God create us in his image? I believe that God created us in his image so that we could have a special connection, a, a unique relationship with God. And I think God is seeking a unique relationship with us as people that he has created, made in his image. In Genesis 3, we see that 
God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and, and you get the sense that this is a, something that he regularly did, and he walked with this couple that he had created, these, this mankind that was in the garden. Just one problem. In chapter 3, all of a sudden, it says the Lord came into the garden, but the couple wasn't around. And the reason they weren't around is that they were hiding. They were separating themselves from this connection with God who had walked with them and talked with them. And so there is a problem that enters. Here, here in the story is, is the great conflict. This is, the, this is now going to be the challenge throughout the story. You know how it is? A, something happens early on and now you realize unless this is rectified, this is not going to end well. This is not going to be a good story. This is not going to be the kind of story I'm going to want to watch if somehow this problem is not overcome and we have a problem early on and that problem is that man is separated from God. That man is not experiencing the kind of relationship with God that God intended. And not only that, but we see that a third of, of the hosts of heaven, these angelic kind of beings that God evidently created also to be with him, that they have fallen. And not only are they separated from God, they're in opposition to God. And not only that, but they're seeking to prohibit the restoration of God to his creation and to his people. From Genesis to Malachi, you can walk through all the you know, you can look at Noah, and, and mankind becomes so separated from God, and evidently irretrievably so, and so God brings the flood, and out of that brings a family through which he will continue, because goal, his goal is still that man would live in relationship with him and be with him. We see Abraham and God calling Abraham and that he, giving him the promise that through all the nations he, he would be blessed. And nations would be blessed through him. We see Moses and God gives him fire by night. Why? To let them know he's with them. He gives them a cloud by day to lead them. Why? So they know that he's with them. He, uh, he has them he spend six chapters telling them how to build this tent, tabernacle. And he wanted, he wanted them to put it right in the middle of all of the people because the tabernacle represented God's presence with them. Whenever they moved, that tabernacle went with them because God wanted them to know that he was with them. And at one point, they grievously sinned against God. They built this calf and started worshiping it. And, and God says, Look, you can go on without me, but I'm not going with you. And the people said, Moses said, if you're not going with us, we're not going. And so we, we see this theme throughout God's prophets, God's continually communicating with his people about how he wants them to be in this covenant relationship with him. From Genesis through Malachi, we see this desire for God to be with his people. Just, I'm just going to walk through this quickly. <clears throat> but in the Old Testament, this is from Joel. It says, never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know. He's talking about something in the future here. Then you know that I am in Israel. No, notice that word. Then you will know that I am in Israel. I am in Israel. That I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. 
And afterward, and here's the prophetic thing, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And the purpose of God's spirit that he has now provided for people to experience is that we can know his presence in our lives through his spirit in us. Taken from Joel. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. By the way, this is written hundreds of years before Christ is born. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and you will call him God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. I'm going to come, and you know what my name's going to be? God with you. This is God with you. And then Malachi 3, the last book of the Old Testament. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. In other words, this is just a prophetic thing that says, you know what? God's going to come and be present with you. And so we see this as prophesied into the, into the New Testament. So what happens? Jesus comes. Jesus comes, and we, we see that there's this, this is an incredible thing. This is like, the, this is like one of the greatest moments in the story. Because no one expected this. And so we see there's this, this problem. The man is separated from God and, and, and yet God is wanting to be with us. And so the decision is made and we see that, we see that heaven looks down and says, oh my goodness, I can't believe. I, I can't believe what just happened. God became man. No one expected that. No one could ever imagine that that the God of the universe would become, would take on human flesh. They'd actually be with them in the form of a man. And so we see that his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And God was determined. God was determined in the story to to make a way for man to be back with him. Jesus lives 33 years. People are kind of thinking this this is God's remedy for them. This is God's solution. And then all of a sudden something happens that makes absolutely no sense. Nobody could figure it out. It's it's like it, it didn't fit the story. It's like that puzzle piece in the puzzle where they're putting together, you know, they were putting together the puzzle and they could kind of see it. They could see Jesus was here and he was going to conquer Rome and and he was going to become the, you know, like the the David of old. And and all of a sudden they were handed a puzzle piece and they said, this this doesn't fit. This has got to be from some other puzzle. This doesn't fit in, in, in the puzzle we're putting together. Nobody understood it. Nobody got it. Like this is, this is one of those movies you hate where the hero gets killed, right? 
Don't you hate those movies? I can't stand, I just have a hard time with those. If, if I'm watching a story, I, I, want, I want good to come out on top. I don't want evil to come out on top. I want, I want the hero to, to, uh, to be the hero. I realize there have been some good movies where a hero does die, but by and large, if that's what every movie was, we probably wouldn't go. So here they are. We jump, it brings us right into the story today on the Maus Road. Two people, they're walking on the road from Jerusalem. It's been a bad movie, a really bad movie. And they had no idea what was going on. It's late Sunday afternoon. It's two people there. It says they were disciples of Jesus. We don't know who they were. We can only speculate. You know, it's kind of interesting that it says the, one of the guys' names was Cleopas, and the other, the other person's name isn't given. If you were to ask me, if I, had to, if I was filling out a test and I had to guess who this was, I think I would, I think I, th- I think I would put down it was Cleopas and his wife. We often have a picture of two guys walking the road, but I'm not sure that's who it was. It's interesting that Clopas, which is one letter difference, and in those days it wasn't unusual at all to have variant spellings of a person's name. It says in John 19 that Mary and the wife of Clopas were at the crucifixion. And so here we have a guy by the name of Clopas who's, who's heading from Jerusalem back to Emmaus where he lived, and you know, if his wife was at the foot of the cross, it would just make sense. It was probably the two of them going back. Whoever it was, whoever it was, they had to have been exhausted. I mean, Thursday night, Jesus is arrested late. I'm sure word got out. They probably got woken up. Hey, did you hear what happened? They just arrested Jesus. He's up, you know, the trial goes all night. Then it's Friday. You can be sure nobody slept that night. Friday's like the crucifixion, late in the afternoon. It's not like you just go home and have supper and have a good night's sleep. If there's somebody you know and loved and cared about and who is your hope has now been torturously murdered on a, on a cross. And Saturday was the Sabbath. You couldn't travel on the Sabbath day that far. It was against the regulations. And so it's Sunday and they're finally heading back. It's kind of a funny story, I think. It's Jesus steps in and pretends like he... He doesn't know what's going on and asks them what's happening and they said, you know, where have you been? I find that kind of a funny question. Where have you been? Well, Jesus said, tell me what things, what things happen? So they tell him everything that's happened that, you know, they had hoped that this Jesus was going to redeem them from, obviously from Rome and, and that the religious leaders had accused him and crucified him on a cross. And then how the, they'd gone to the tomb and the women had talked about angels and they went back there and yeah, the tomb was empty, but they didn't see anybody. And so they're in this conversation about, probably about what next? Back to life as usual. We see that Jesus then kind of reprimands them and, and says, hey, you know, have you guys read your Old Testament? He talks a lot about a coming Messiah who would suffer. And 
Boy, I'd have loved to have been there and heard Jesus' explanation when he went through the Old Testament and explained all the places where it prophesied about who he was and how he would do his ministry and, and how he would die and how he would be raised up. All prophesied in the Old Testament. And so he explains all this to them. Finally, they arrive at Emmaus and Jesus is going to walk on and they strongly, it says they strongly encouraged him to stay. And so he stays and it's, it's in that place when he takes the bread and he breaks it and all of a sudden they're going, oh, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. They recognize that it was him. And just like that, he was gone. He vanished from their sight. So what's significant about this story? Other than that, it's an interesting story. Well, you know, there's a reason why Luke put it here. And, and I think what Luke here is, is wanting to do, he's wanting to make clear by this story and, and other stories of telling us about the, the post-crucifixion, uh, post-resurrection stories of, of Jesus running into people. He's wanting to make very clear that the cross is not the end of the story. That this plan that God had to be with us has, has not been interrupted. Actually, this plan has been made possible. And so we, we see that he's making it, again, very clear. For this couple, whoever this was walking down this road, guess what? Jesus is still with them. Emmanuel is still with them. The story has not ended. You know, in our stories, when people die, the characters don't come back, but not in God's story. That's what makes God so amazing is that, you know, he has the power of life, and he has the power of death, but he also has the power of life over death. It's not the end of the experience of God with us. So how do we apply? How does this apply to our lives today? Let me just share a little bit of how, you might, how we might think about this. I think on some level, we're all walking in Emmaus Road. I think we're all on that road. I think it's a road of, sometimes it's a road of sorrow. Sometimes it's a road of disillusionment. Maybe it's a road of change plans. Maybe it's a road of difficult health issues. Someone we lose that we love. Sometimes it's a road of just feeling tired and weak and worn out and weary from everything, just from life. But I think it's a road that we, we all walk. And it's a road for which we're all looking at somehow to, to find meaning in what's going on in our life. It's, it's the experience we all have of walking through life in this world, often a, a broken world. But the thing about the Emmaus Road is that it's often on that road that we encounter Jesus. I mean, I could, how many stories are there out there of people are going, you know what, this is the worst time of my life. But it was the best time in my life because it was on that road. It was through that experience. It was in those days 
that Jesus revealed himself to me. We encounter him on that road. And sometimes we walk that road for a long time and we don't realize that Jesus is there. He's not off somewhere. He's, he's walking with us, but we don't recognize him. I, mean, I don't know how many times I've heard people all of a sudden realize Jesus for who he is and trust in him and look back and they go, man, I look back and I just, I can see he was, he was like with me all along in all these places. He was with me. I just didn't see him. That's the Emmaus Road. Why don't we recognize him? Well, in, you know, in this case, and it's probably true for us, these guys had their own agenda for Jesus. That's one of them. They had their own, you know, this is how life was going to go for them, and this is how Jesus was going to do that, and they were going to be free from the Romans, and they were going to have this. Jesus had something so much bigger going on. They thought Jesus came to free them from Rome, and Jesus is coming them to free them from all the powers of hell and from death. But they didn't get it. They had their own agenda, and they didn't see. Uh, they simply didn't believe in a resurrection. Even though Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to die three days later. I'm going to come back to life. It's going to be a sign that I am who I say I am, that you can trust me with your life. But they, you know, people just don't rise from the dead. And so they didn't believe in resurrection, at least at that point, before Jesus appeared to them. And one other reason is they, they lack spiritual eyes to see. You know, it says in the text that they were, they were kept from recognizing him, and then it was almost like God allowed, Jesus allowed them to see him. And so, I, I, you know, as, as, we, as we think about that, I think some of the things practically we can do to, to see Jesus more clearly here is certainly we can give up our agenda, realize maybe God has a different plan for my life. We can believe in the resurrection. We can believe that if God could create all of life, that maybe he could take us through an experience of death and, and bring life even out of death. And I think we need to pray that, you know, I think we need to pray that Jesus would reveal himself to us. It does happen, and it happens on our Emmaus Road. Uh, I don't know how many, how many of you have heard of Malcolm Muggeridge. <clears throat> he was a satirist writer in England. He died a number of years ago now, 1990. And, uh, but I was reading his story again this week. I just ran across it. And, I mean, he took on everybody in England. He, he took on the royal family. He took on the political system. He took on the culture. He took on the church. If you had made a list of people least likely to become Christians, Malcolm would have been one of them. He was a brutal satirist and spared, didn't spare mercy for anybody in his writings. But he had an experience on the Emmaus Road. And I'm not saying that figuratively. Actually, he and a film crew went to Israel and they were, deuce, they were, they were working on the Emmaus Road for some project. And this is what he writes. 
My friend and I walked along like Cleopas and his friend. We recalled, as they did, the events of the crucifixion and its aftermath in light of our utterly different and yet similar worlds. Nor was it a coincidence that we too were joined by a third presence on that road. And I tell you that whatever the walk and whoever the wayfarers, there is always a third presence ready to emerge from the shadows and to fall in step along the dusty, stony way. I, I love that. As you walk down your Emmaus Road, there in the shadows, there is a third presence following you. And that presence will step out for anyone who's ready to listen, for anyone who's wanting to hear. I had kind of my own Emmaus Road experience. I've shared it before. But as I was thinking through this, Back in 1949, there was something called Crucio, which came out of the Catholic Church in Spain. It's kind of a retreat experience, and then it, it came to the U.S., and it was adapted by Lutheran denomination, Episcopal, Methodist, others. I don't know how many have been to an Emmaus Road experience. It's a uh, few of you have. For many people, it's, it's, it was a, a life-changing experience, a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and so this was an Emmaus Road. It was four days, three nights. It's over in Appleton. It was big, big church, old church. And every night at the end of the day, there's a lot of information, a lot of good stuff. I, c- I couldn't tell you what it was. I couldn't tell you anything I learned except three things. All three of those things happened at night after we took communion together. We, sat, we were invited to sit in the church for, before we went to bed and just allow God. Just invite God's presence to just if God wanted to say something to us, to allow him to do that. So I just went and sat down there, and I'm, I'm just sitting there, and I'm just being quiet, and I wasn't trying to think of anything, and, and all of a sudden, God spoke to me the first night. When I say God spoke to me, it's not that I heard words, literally. It's just that all of a sudden, all of a sudden, these four words came into my mind, just, just hit me like somebody was speaking them to my, to my spirit and to my mind. And the four words were, you are my son. You are my son. Now that's something, if you're a guy here, it's something you long to hear from your father. A lot of guys don't hear that from their dad. Even though they know their dad loves them and cares about them, they they just don't hear that hand on the shoulder like Jesus heard from his father. This is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. And so to hear your dad say the words, even though you know it, there's just something about hearing the words. And for me that night, those words were so powerful. You are my son. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's that's what you live out of. And by the way, if you know, when as as a follower of Christ, we become sons and daughters. That's as true for you as it is for me. But you know, someone could stand up and preach that to me and I'd hear it, but it's, it's another thing when God actually speaks it into your heart. The second night, four more words. I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden, it's like, I am with you. 
It's like wherever you go, whatever you do, from the time you get up, doesn't matter, I am with you. You're my son, and I'm with you. I have to tell you, I, I, I rem- I, those things come back to me often. They're just very powerful for me. And, and the third thing, those are two things I was called to believe. Often the most transforming things in our lives are not things God calls us to do. They're things he calls us to believe. Because once we believe them, it transforms everything that we do. Well, the third one was something that I needed to do and, and I'm still doing. And this often, often comes back to me. The last night, the four words were, don't stop halfway. Don't stop halfway. I can't tell you how many times that's come back to me because I, I'm, I'm still... It was like an invitation. It was like an invitation. An invitation to, to invite Christ in. And you know, it's, it's in a deeper way. And it's interesting in the story, and I'll just conclude with this. You know, it's interesting in the story that Jesus was about to walk on and they would have never known. They would have never seen him. They would have never encountered the reality of Jesus in their life had they not strongly encouraged him to come. And, and there's something that, you know, if you could take or leave Jesus, he's probably not going to show up in your life. He's just not. But if you really want him, if you really want him to come in and you open the door, the, the word says, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open it, and invite me in, I will come in. And that's exactly what they did. And it, it was in the invitation that Jesus then opens their eyes for them to see him. God with us. You know, I'm just praying that all of us on some level, when we get down with this month of, and talking about, you're going to see different ways every Sunday that God is seeking for you to experience his presence. And so my prayer is that we will, we will understand in a powerful way and that we might on that Emmaus road that we're all walking, that we might see Jesus in a, in a powerful way. Father, I want to thank you for this story and I want to thank you for this season. And I want to thank you for this truth that, God, this redemptive story is a story about you wanting, not only wanting, but <clears throat> acting and doing and, and, and working that you want to be with us. And in the end of time, that's where your people end up. Father, the climax of this story is Jesus coming, living his life, dying on that cross that we might be forgiven that by grace and through faith, just by grace through faith, not by works, lest any of us would boast that we can know you, that you will reveal yourself to us, that you will send that spirit into our lives that will transform and, and change us. So Father, we, uh, we just together submit ourselves to you over these weeks and months. And uh, might we experience you with us in a powerful, powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.